This is A-State Connections on KASU. I'm Jonathan Reeves. This is a weekly segment called A-State Connections and Create at State, making connections that count. In this segment, we hear presentations during this year's virtual Created State Symposium. These are presentations from the College of Education and Behavioral Science. The first presentation is from Landon Bonner for the presentation, What Elements of Caregiving Influence Teen Drug Use? Brandon makes the presentation, and the co-presenter on the presentation was Emily Burke. So first, some background. Millions of Americans use drugs and alcohol. Why? Well, drug use can commonly start in adolescence. And what's the reasoning behind that? Well, behavior displayed by the primary caregiver, the one who's most responsible for care and responsibility of the caregiver, um, can play a key role in the development and play a key role in discouraging specifically teen drug use. So the purpose of our study was to see exactly which factors of behavior displayed by the primary caregiver during upbringing correlated with teen drug use. And our hypothesis was that there would be a relationship between teen drug use and the different factors of upbringing. So we know that the behavior by the primary caregiver has has a role but we want to see exactly which factors and which behaviors specifically have the, have the best and most obvious role. And so what we had was a questionnaire of 111 psychology student participants that looked over caregiver and drug use questions, two different sections. And so the first section, the, the caregiver section, had 32 questions, which looked over three different factors. The first factor, caregiver support, looked at how involved and supportive the primary caregiver was. And so, for example, it provided my primary caregivers provided emotional support. My primary caregiver was involved in education. And so the next factor, caregiver respect, looked at how responsive the caregiver was. My caregiver listened to my point of view. My caregiver allowed me to make my own decisions. And so the next factor was caregiver strictness. And that looked at how restricting the primary caregiver was. So, for example, they emphasize tradition, they expect a strict obedience, stuff like that. And so the next section looked at drug use. And so it contained 10 drug use questions in total, and it looked over two different factors itself. The first factor was common drug use. And common drug use included uh, drugs such as marijuana, alcohol, tobacco. Hard drugs included opioids, hallucinogens, and other stuff. And so what you see in our relation, in our results was that caregiver respect was significantly correlated with both hard and common drugs. And with caregiver strictness, neither, neither was related to hard. Caregiver strictness was not related to either hard or common drugs. And with caregiver support, you see that both scores are significant, really significant with both hard and common. It was even stronger than it was for respect. And so what you see in the regressions, and this first one is common drugs, is that the beta for caregiver support was much stronger than it was for either respect or strictness. And you see the exact same thing with hard drugs. Caregiver support stood out from the other two factors. And so in conclusion, caregiver support and respect correlate with both hard and common drug use. However, caregiver strictness did not. And caregiver support was decisively the most important correlate in this study. And so what that means is that the more the primary caregiver was involved in the lives of the caregiver, the more they provided emotional support, the more they were there for them, the less drugs that they used. 
and the more respect and how responsive they were also had an effect as well. However, emphasizing tradition, for example, the strict obedience, the carrier of strictness did not necessarily have a key role. And so what all this means is that behavior displayed by the primary caregiver during upbringing does indeed matter. It does have a relationship with teen drug use and they do have a role. And so what you see is that behavior by the primary caregiver is important and it does have an impact. That was Landon Bonner. Next is Sarah Brown for the presentation, Undergraduate Oral Presentation, Impact of Educational Television. Anyone with kids or anyone who watched TV as a child is likely familiar with some kind of educational show. There are so many out there to choose from, and many have been around for a really long time. Producers of these shows have long thought that television has the capacity to be impactful in the lives of their child viewers. Shows like Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood have been around since the 60s, and programs serving similar purposes, namely to provide educational benefits to children and prepare them for formal schooling, still exist today. Sesame Street is even one of them. They've been producing new episodes and content since the late 60s. Studies conducted on the short-term effects of these educational programs have found that they can increase literacy skills, perspective-taking, emotional regulation, and they can decrease the amount of negative stereotypes children may hold against other groups. One study that looked at census data from 1969 even found that children who lived in areas where Sesame Street had increased coverage were more likely to be in a grade fitting for their age. Far fewer studies have been conducted on long-term effects, but the study by Kearney and Levine that used old census data found that children who had been living in areas where the signal for Sesame Street was especially strong when they were viewers of the program were 14% more likely to be in a grade fitting for their age in middle and high school as well. So what did we do? Because research on long-term effects of educational television is so limited, we decided to look at college students' perceptions of the long-term impact of the educational programs they watched in childhood. We looked at their perceptions on four educational programs, Blue's Clues, Dora the Explorer, The Magic School Bus, and Sesame Street. We chose these four programs based on the responses participants gave to a survey question asking them which program they viewed most often in childhood that was part of a pilot study. We wanted to know how they believed these programs impacted them on cognitive, social, and emotional dimensions. Participants chose which of the four programs they viewed most often in childhood, and they answered the extent to which they believed that particular program taught them some such skill on a scale of one to five, with one being strongly disagree and five being strongly agree. These are the skills we asked participants about organized by dimension. Some of the skills we asked about for the cognitive dimension were how to read, how to count, and how to problem solve. Some of the skills we asked about for the social dimension were how to share with others, how to solve problems without violence, and how to work cooperatively with others. And some of the skills we asked about for the emotional dimension were how to recognize your emotions, how to control your emotions, and how to recognize how your emotions affect others. We asked about cognitive, social, and emotional skills because educational programs have been found to impact each of these skills in the short term, and we want to see if that may hold true for the long term. So, what did we find? Overall, college students remember what they watched, and they generally believe the programs they watched had a positive impact on all three dimensions. The highest perceived impact was on social skills, then cognitive, then emotional. This did vary by program, and Sesame Street rated the highest on all three skills. The Magic School Bus rated the lowest on cognitive skills, and Blue's Clues rated lowest on social and emotional skills. 
So why does any of this matter? Well, this implies that these programs do have some kind of long-term impact, particularly on social skills. It seems that children's educational television may be more impactful in the long term than we anticipated. College students are remembering what they viewed, and they're remembering it as being impactful to them on all three dimensions, but again, particularly on social skills. Additionally, results from this study can be used by television developers, producers, and writers to build on the past success of these programs we studied and create more impactful content and programs for future child viewers. That was Sarah Brown. Next is Megan Gunnels with a presentation, The Impact of COVID-19 on College Students' Coping Strategies. So in March of 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic closed down Arkansas State University, as well as many other schools across the country, and we began pursuing remote learning opportunities. Uh, Social distancing was happening, quarantine was happening, and I began to notice through this that my coping styles, as well as others um, in my family and that I was around, um, had changed from previous um, types of coping. And so I wanted to do my honors thesis project over this and see if the COVID-19 pandemic had um, impacted students' um, coping styles and and see if personality played a role in that. A lot of the literature um, for coping had discussed um, coping after natural disasters and wars, and um, I wanted to adapt some of that to involve coping after a pandemic. So I wanted to see if there's any type of correlation between coping and different aspects of personality and included a locus of control measure as well. So I used three already established measures, the Carver Brief Cope Scale, the Rotor's Locus of Control Scale, and the 10-item personality inventory. And so the survey was given through the A-State SONA system, and we had 144 participants who all received the same survey, a consent page, a 28-item brief cope scale, a 10-item personality scale, an 11-item locus of control scale, and demographic questions. And so we had over 130 significant correlations between all of these measures, um, but for the sake of time, I will only go over a few. Um, There was a positive correlation between denial and behavioral disengagement, um, which can be assumed because the more a person is disengaging um, from society and their behavior is um, disengaging, you can see that they are partaking in more of a denial coping mechanism, just denying the whole pandemic, denying um, what they're doing. It's not really happening and just disengaging from that. There's a positive correlation between um, emotional support and venting, which is interesting because emotional support was something that was highly needed during the social distancing and the quarantining. So if a participant felt that they had a strong emotional support system, then you're seeing them partake more in that venting coping style, um, which is really interesting. There is a positive correlation between neuroticism and locus of control. So the personality style of neuroticism is positively correlated with an external locus of control. So the more of an external focus that um, a participant is taking, the more you can see that neuroticism personality style. And there's also positive correlation between substance use and locus of control, um, which is interesting to note because substance use can quickly turn into substance abuse. And so if we're seeing more of these students with um, a external locus of control partaking in substance use, um, that can quickly turn into abuse if um, not careful. And so it's important to note that positive correlation. 
Um, these are our participants. And so, as I said, there's 144 participants. And one of the things that um, I should note is that majority of our participants were Caucasian female. And so I would love to see the survey done with more minority students and non-traditional students. Another thing is that Arkansas State University did go back to campus in August. So for the fall 2020 semester. And so I would love to see the survey um, in universities where they continued remote learning through the fall semester and into the spring semester and see if coping was different for those types of students at that university. Um, as far as future research, I think that the effects of these measures um, can be really important for the future ramifications of higher education. Um, I think that um, changes in students choosing remote learning options um, could be seen as far as their coping. So students who really enjoyed remote learning had positive coping mechanism styles um, would probably prefer remote learning versus students who had very negative coping and would prefer the face-to-face -face instruction. Um, there also could be changes in students who are even choosing to pursue higher learning opportunities in general. Um, high school students may have chosen to take a gap year between high school and beginning their undergraduate degree as well. Students who were in their undergraduate degree during the pandemic who may have chosen to not pursue a graduate um, program or students who chose to take a gap year. Um, so I think that could be interesting to look at um, based off students' coping mechanisms. That was Megan Gunnels. Next, Veronica Milnes with the presentation, Psychological Reaction to the Coronavirus. Back in January of 2020, whispers of the coronavirus in other areas of the world reached the university, yet no fear came. It won't end up here. We won't be affected. There's nothing to be afraid of. That's what we all thought. Fast forward to the end of March, beginning of April, when we realized that the coronavirus was a real threat to us. Almost overnight, the university transitioned into online classes, students and faculty were being sent home, social distancing guidelines and mask mandates were being strictly reinforced, and our return to normal was indefinite. So the question is, how did this sudden and mysterious change impact the psychological well-being of students? I assume that the pandemic did indeed have an impact, but of what nature? Were students impacted positively or negatively? And were they impacted a lot or a little? These questions circled my head as I listened to the concerns of my friends, family, and peers around me. The easiest way to answer these questions was through Maslow's holistic dynamic theory, which you may know as the hierarchy of needs. Abraham Maslow was a psychologist that evaluated not only our psychological needs, but how our environment interacted with our needs and how our needs interacted with one another as well. Therefore, his theory was the key to understanding our psychological reaction to the coronavirus by evaluating what he proposed as our five basic needs. These needs go in a hierarchical order, starting with a physiological needs, such as the need for food at the bottom, the needs for safety, love and belonging, self-esteem, and self-actualization at the top. Based on this hierarchy, I conducted a study to evaluate if and how our satisfaction of psychological needs have changed in response to the coronavirus. Now, what was I expecting to find? Well, ultimately, I thought there would be a negative change in physiological needs and the need for safety. Overall, my survey consisted of general questions about feelings towards health, security, stability, anxiety, and so on. But in creating these questions, I considered that the students being sent home no longer had access to campus cafeteria or the campus store. There was no telling if they were eating properly. Also, businesses and restaurants were closing down indefinitely, so this may have led to students being laid off from their jobs, claiming temporary unemployment, or just generally not having access to the resources they needed. These are the types of things I assumed would influence their answers. Now you might be thinking, what about the other three basic psychological needs? 
truthfully, I was expecting to find a positive change in the final three. In this part of my survey, I asked general questions about connection with friends, feelings of confidence, satisfaction with life, and so on. These are the needs I figured would be most influenced by technology, which is what separates our generation from generations past. With technology, students are able to connect with friends, family, classmates, and professors virtually via Zoom and connect with the rest of the world via social media. Technology serves as a connection to others, which would influence the need for love and belonging, and also serves as a creative outlet, which would influence the need for esteem and self-actualization. Were my expectations met? Not necessarily. Instead of finding a negative change in some needs and a positive change in other needs, I found a negative change overall for each of the five basic psychological needs. Each need was measured on a five-point Likert scale from negative change to positive change, in which three indicated no change at all. Roughly 200 students participated in the study, and as you can see by the graph on the right, they reported the largest negative change in their need for love and belonging and almost no change in their need for self-actualization. This shows that there was indeed a psychological impact as expected, but not of the same nature as I predicted. Instead, students reported a negative psychological impact overall, but not by much. So what does this mean? My interpretation is that technology still makes a positive contribution, but not enough to prevent an overall negative impact from the coronavirus. A virtual connection is not exactly the same as a face-to-face -face interaction, so technology can only go so far. My guess is without this resource, students would have reported a much more drastic negative change in their need for love and belonging due to the coronavirus. Same goes for the need for safety. Without proper testing and consistent social guidelines to protect each individual, students may have reported a much more drastic negative change in their safety needs as well. At the end of the day, the coronavirus negatively impacted our hierarchy of needs, possibly rearranging it in a way that Maslow would have found confusing. That was Veronica Milnes. Next, Cameron O'Connor with a presentation, a survey about racial climate in the classroom. So over the past year and a half, We've experienced a global pandemic. We've seen a controversial election in its aftermath. But we've also seen a series of high profile events of violence towards Black Americans, such as the killing of George Floyd and the shooting of Breonna Taylor. So emotions are running high. We've seen Black Lives Matter protests and social media campaign in response to these instances. And now more than ever, race is becoming a topic of conversation. But Black and white Americans view the current climate differently. Black Americans feel like there's still much work to be done to address racial injustices, while attitudes of white Americans remain largely unchanged since 2019 or since before we started seeing a lot of these events happen. So we need to have more discussions about race. We need to have these conversations to promote understanding across racial lines. And a transition to the classroom could be ideal to do that and to shift attitudes for the better. But how would our students feel about these conversations? So Daryl Sue suggests that there are three main protocols or characteristics regarding race talk. Typically race can evoke negative and strong feelings and the academic protocol suggests that students are encouraged to suppress those feelings if they're intense or strong for the sake of the academic environment or the classroom. The politeness protocol suggests that students will prioritize respect and being polite and to do that, they typically avoid uncomfortable conversations and topics, and race is usually one of those topics. And last, the colorblind protocol says that students overlook racial differences. So we wanted to see if there were differences in how white and black students perceive these protocols in the classroom. 
The survey was 31 items and presented to lower level psychology students. And to supplement the African-American population, it was presented to historically African-American fraternities and sororities. The items were on a five point Likert type scale from strongly disagree to strongly agree. And below we have some of the items and then the protocols that they are representing. So for the politeness protocol, we have students should be respectful of each other during conversations about race. And my feelings about race are too intense to be shared. The academic protocol, the classroom is not a place to share my opinions about race and conversations about race should be discouraged in the classroom. And the colorblind protocol is during conversations about race. I am colorblind and I do not see my peers in terms of race. Only the self-identified African-American and white students were analyzed for this survey. So starting with the politeness protocol, we see that both groups of students strongly agree. And again, that politeness protocol is where students are gonna prioritize being respectful and polite regardless of their beliefs. So we see that both of our students understand the importance of being respectful regardless of what the topic of the conversation is. When we get to the academic protocol though, we start to see a little bit of difference. The academic protocol is where students feel that they should suppress their intense feelings for the sake of the academic environment or the classroom. Our African-American students strongly disagree with this protocol, suggesting that they don't believe that they should suppress their intense feelings and that they do feel like the classroom is the place to share those feelings while our white students fall right around that mean, not knowing whether to agree or disagree with the academic protocol. And lastly, the colorblind protocol is where we see our biggest difference. And that colorblind protocol is where students are asked whether or not they see their peers in terms of race or whether or not they are colorblind. Our African-American students strongly disagree, meaning that they do see their peers in terms of race. And our white students strongly agree, saying that they don't see their peers in terms of race, or that they are colorblind. So why does this matter and why is it important? So our survey gave us a little bit more insight about how our students feel, but our educators and teachers are just as important when it comes to these conversations. These conversations are becoming unavoidable and they're happening more and more often. So our teachers need to be open and willing to address these problems head on and not treat race as the elephant in the room. And we also want our classroom environment to feel safe for our students. We want our students to feel free to talk about the negative aspects that are typically associated with race, such as injustices and inequities, but we want the classroom to be safe and open to talk about and highlight the positive aspects of race and diversity as well. And that was Cameron O'Connor. To hear these segments uh, and to hear more like this one, you can subscribe to the Created State podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. And take KASU with you wherever you go. And you can listen to podcast segments on the KASU mobile app for free. And tell others about the Created State podcast and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Always, we'd love to hear from you. You're listening to A-State Connections on KASU. I'm Jonathan Reeves. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.